Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Um, my name is Jonathan, uh, your host for today, but uh, we have a, a full crew today. We have uh, Doug, Elliot, Tiffany, and Erica. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. So uh, today is Friday, January 13th. Uh, we have a full moon on Friday the 13th, so it is quite an auspicious day. Um, <laughs> and uh, today on our show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Alexander Wunsch. And um, I wonder, uh, Elliot, if you could go ahead and uh, introduce Dr. Wunsch, and then we will just uh, get right into the topic. Yeah, fabulous. Um, so Dr. Ale- Alexander Wunsch is a lead, world-leading expert in light medicine and photobiology. Um, he conducts research on the cellular effects of light, and he, um, he also runs a private medical practice in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, he specializes in many different types of therapies and treatments, including chromotherapy, vibrational medicine, and craniosacral bodywork. So yeah, today we've got a very special guest, and um, welcome Dr. Alexander Wunsch. Hi. Would um, Would you be able to tell us just what sort of brought you to this field of work? No. Oh, this this is a short question with probably probably a long answer. <laughs> I was not uh, not confident what uh, I had to learn uh, on the university with regard to to medicine. It was kind of different from what I uh, expected um, when I started to um, become engaged with this uh, field with with. Uh, human medicine and <clears throat> I was concerned about uh, this focusing on um, pharmacological pharmacological products biochemistry and no one really was interested in biophysical um, issues besides uh, pure diagnosis and so um, this was, in a way, the starting point um, when I got interested in biophysics. In, it started with uh, developing um, a unit which which uh, was able to bring electromagnetic frequencies into the brain via ear clip electrodes, a battery-driven device which was able or is able to change your mood, to change your neurological functions, and so on. So this was the my entry to this um, area of biophysical medicine. Fabulous. Um, and so when did you start to learn about the effects of light because in 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 medicine um light is something that isn't really focused on much um typically when you go to a doctor they don't really tell you anything about light apart from the fact that you should stay outside of sunlight um or or you should protect yourself against sunlight because it, it is known to cause cancer apparently um so so what sparked your interest in in the effect of light on the human body um, I 
when I developed this uh, brainman cranial electrostimulation unit, uh, this this uh, stimulation system, stimulation device, uh, which works on a, on the base basis of frequencies and oscillations, I got into the field of electromagnetic waves and the brainwave frequencies are just a very tiny bit of the whole spectrum. And so I was discovering a principle which was brought to me by a Swiss mathematician. Um, his name is, is Cousteau. And he was presenting information on how to use the principle of octaves when you work with electromagnetic fields, electromagnetic vibrations and oscillations. And the, this, this law of octaves, which refers back to Pythagoras, who experimented with string instruments and discovered some laws in the context uh, of music, this law of octaves enabled me to, to get a better impression of the connecting elements between all these different frequencies and the whole range of frequencies in the electromagnetic spectrum. Because you can, for example, uh, calculate uh, equivalent um, colors for a certain frequency in the brainwave range, or you can calculate um, an equivalent color for a musical tone or so. And this brought me from the low frequencies of the brainwaves, which are somewhere between 0.5 hertz and 30, 30 or 40 hertz to the musical frequencies and finally to the frequencies in the octaves of visible light. And so my, in the very beginning, I was primarily interested in the effects of colored light because I wanted to create an experiential room where you can have some kind of coherence therapy, which means the mm, the vibrations you would get from uh, a sound table mm, and the, the musical pitch and the colors you see would all mm, have to be coordinated or synchronized in a way, would have to be become coherent so that we have mm, the same kind of information on all the different levels of experience. And this, this was the start. And from, from the exploring of the visible spectrum in terms of single colors, finally I ended up to become interested in the long wavelength part of the spectrum, interested in the near infrared spectrum because there was a growing field these days um, of applications which are called photobiomodulation or low-level light therapy 
And the, the last part of the spectrum I started to explore was the UV part. And uh, this brought me to, um, to all these um, researchers uh, who went into the field of heliotherapy about 100, 150 years ago. Uh, this brought me, it was a kind of time travel into these days where tuberculosis and other um, darkness-associated um, diseases Mm, were a big problem for the Western society, for people who were living in, in cities and had kind of lack of, of sunlight. Yeah, so there was a kind of sequence from the <clears throat> brain waves to the musical tones to rhythms, oscillations, uh, and finally the light spectrum. Wow. wow so so you speak about the the diseases of darkness and um i know in some of your lectures you've mentioned about tuberculosis and about how um was it different types of 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 lighting um could be used to treat these diseases um but this this was a therapy that that was um that's not used anymore or that's not uh, widely acknowledged by the medical community? Um, um, when we look back and, um, yeah, when we look at the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century or um, <clears throat> beginning of the 19th century, the problem was that we didn't, that the, the medical doctors had no idea uh, about the reason for certain problems they they would see in their patients like rickets, for example, or tuberculosis. But what they found out, what they understood quite early, that there was a connection <clears throat> between the lifestyle and uh, the occurrence and incidence of these diseases of darkness. So in the cities, mm, they found a lot uh, more patients suffering from rickets tuberculosis and so uh, compared to um, people living on the countryside um, and in a way they had a, a kind of idea that the light exposure exposure to natural sunlight would play a role but uh, it was quite diffuse for uh, many decades and um, in the ending Nineteenth uh, century, just by empirical means, uh, some of the therapists discovered if they would expose the patients suffering from <clears throat> these diseases in a um, specific manner to natural sunlight, that they would recover. That sunlight would would uh, foster the healing process. And uh, it went on with the work of Niels Rüberg Finsen, who was <coughs> a, a physician in Denmark. And he, in a way, started uh, a movement in the late 19th and the beginning 20th century, um, since he discovered that light plays a significant role in certain very important processes 
in the organism like um, inflammation reaction. So he found out that light was was able or potent means to induce inflammation first in, in cases of patients with smallpox. If uh, he protected these patients from sunlight and especially from the blue part of the spectrum in sunlight, they would have uh, significantly less signs of uh, inflammation and much better chance to survive this um, disease. And so this brought uh, Finzen to a kind of negative uh, phototherapy, which means mm, the exclusion of certain parts of the spectrum mm, would be the, the um, main trick would make the trick uh, or would be the effective um, intervention. And later on, he was thinking about um, the use of especially this part in the spectrum, which is able to induce the inflammation in case of smallpox. But now in the case of skin manifestation of tuberculosis, he wanted to induce the inflammatory process in the skin because he was convinced that the inflammation would help the organism to uh, to fight the germs, to fight the tuberculosis um, germs from the power within the organism. And this led him to this positive phototherapy with concentrated um, rays of, of the short wavelength spectrum in sunlight. And in the first years, he was using sunlight itself, but in Copenhagen, in Denmark, he just realized that there were only 30 days throughout the year where he could perform this uh, effective treatment. And this was uh, a drawback for the sun itself. So he made experiments with, with electrical light sources with high content in the UV part of the spectrum. And this finally was then was the moment when the Finzen method uh, with actinic rays with the short wavelength rays <coughs> from uh, artificial light sources was inaugurated or invented uh, in the late 19th, 19th century. <coughs> and what um, what what kinds of diseases did he use um, to treat? Did he use this light to treat? You know. Um, yeah, as I already mentioned, tuberculosis. This was really a threat. Uh, these days, we are talking about um, uh, a phase or a time where medicine had no pharmaceutical means to to treat uh, infections like tuberculosis, and they had no um, no means to treat um, diseases of vitamin D deficiency like rickets because they even had no idea that vitamin D would exist 
and the tuberculosis was really the threat which was widespread uh, a lot of people a lot of the a great number of the population suffered from tuberculosis in different forms the skin manifestation manifestation uh, or lupus vulgaris this was the mm, disease which had been treated by Finsen. He specialized on this skin manifestation, which was socially devastating because if someone uh, carried the sign of this uh, disease, he would lose all his social contacts and so on and so on. Uh, but there were other uh, types of tuberculosis um, where the, the, the joints, for example, were affected or the pulmonary system was affected and all these uh, different manifestations responded uh, quite um, quite well when they had been treated by light and light was the the um, the dernier cri it was the mm, the latest mm, development it was very fashionable in a way, if you would want to use this word um, in medicine these days, around the, the step into the 20th century, because they didn't have antibiotics. Uh, they had no other um, treatment modality, which was uh, comparable with the, if, with the effect of, the, of light therapy. And uh, Finton treated the <clears throat> skin manifestations, and in Switzerland, for example, uh, some doctors started uh, to use the natural sunlight because it was um, widely available throughout the whole year in Switzerland. Um, if you compare it, for example, with the countries in the Baltic region. And the mountains in Switzerland, they had another advantage. They would provide high amounts of ultraviolet radiation, even in winter times. And so um, there were two parallel developments. On one hand, the treatment with artificial light sources, um, with concentrated ultraviolet light from quartz lamps which were filled with uh, mercury so the mercury discharge lamps were very good in producing high amounts of ultraviolet radiation um, and on the other hand we had the doctors in switzerland the sun doctors uh, who were using direct natural sunlight with its broad spectrum and sunlight does not only contain high amounts of UV, it also contains uh, all the other wavelengths, those we can um, perceive directly with our eyes, but also the near infrared um, and a bit of infrared B radiation as well. So before um, this discovery was made, um is there any evidence to say that historical cultures um, going back longer than uh, a few hundred years, um, is there anything to say that, that maybe um, this understanding that sunlight could be used as a type of medicine 
um, occurred? Um, when, when you think of the uh, of, of the area where humans mm, supposedly stem from, um, thinking of this film Out of Africa, mm, I, I think the first um, step mm, in human relationship to sunlight was for sure the protection from excessive exposure in in the middle of africa it was not an issue uh, that you would suffer from um, low doses of sunlight and we can tell this uh, by looking at the skin color of people who live there in these areas mm, the problem with the lack of sunlight was linked to uh, the migration processes or the, the migration situation when when humans early humans um, had to leave Africa and had to uh, to accommodate to this to other climate zones like those we have in, in the area of, of Europe or in the Baltic region or so. Here it was the problem that there was not enough sunlight for many months during the year. And it was an issue in terms of uh, thermal comfort because you, those uh, in ancient days people would have to, as we have to as well nowadays, cover the body surface uh, with clothes and shield the the skin from sunlight even if it's there in our days the the clothing habits uh, in a way prevent us from prevent our skin from being uh, in constant contact with our outer lighting condition and these were the situations where it where it became evident that there is a connection between the right dose of sunlight and and health uh, proper properly working organism and um, we can tell that or we know that um, even in ancient times sunlight um, played uh, a paramount role, um, for example, in religion, um, for culture. Sunlight was uh, linked or representing life in general, and if the sun was not there, uh, life was in danger. And so sun worshipping can be found in I think almost all the cultures we have uh, access to in terms of um, getting information about the culture, about this, uh, the um, social life. And so a prominent uh, example would be um, ancient Egypt. And we have access to pictures, to um, statues and uh, to a 
lot of visual information where we can tell from that sunlight definitely played a significant role in the ancient Egyptian society. Well, Doctor, and so, yeah? Dr. Wunsch, I wanted to ask you, um, I've read a lot about how sunlight was used to treat wounds in, in wartime especially, but this was in the 18th and 19th centuries. Can you tell us a little bit of how uh, sunlight does what it does? What makes it so special? How does it act on the body on a cellular level to help us heal? Hmm. Um, first thing is that that is sunlight. It's we we have to define, in my understanding, the sequence. Or uh, first, uh, there was in the very beginning there was light. The first uh, stimulus was sunlight, and um, on the surface of a of a spinning planet. This means that you have a kind of um, oscillatory effect in terms of thermodynamics, which means you have an, an, an influence, a rhythmical influence onto the surface of this planet. Every 24 hours, the sun is the same position in the sky. And as long as the sun is present, we have an intake of uh, 1.3 kilowatts which per square meter, which is a lot of energy. And when the sun has set and there is no sun in the sky, we have um, an emission of radiation from the surface of our planet. And this um, alternating direction of energy flow um, created a situation where the matter on our planet, on the surface of our, of our planet Earth, had to follow this um, photonic rhythm, which was presented in a coordinated uh, activity between the radiating sun and the spinning planet. And everything which happened since then, including the evolution of life, was exposed to these specific um, properties of the radiation, was exposed to the timing and was exposed to the spectral distribution, which varies uh, depending on the location on on. Uh, the planet's surface as well. And it's not, we cannot say that sunlight is beneficial. What we can say is that since sunlight was present from the very beginning, all life forms had to adapt uh, in the best manner they could to the specific um, properties of sunlight. And so we find in the end, uh, when we look to this from now, it seems to us that sunlight, sunlight is beneficial. But um, going a bit deeper, 
it is it's the fact that those organisms mm, which are existent today are those who were able to optimally adapt to sunlight and this optimal adaption or adaptation for example means that if you have mm, problematic parts in the sunlight the optimally mm, adapted um, organism seeks for a solution to compensate for this uh, negative aspect and develops strategies for example um, which help the organism to uh, act against the negative aspects and if if we look at the question from from this perspective then we can ask ourselves mm, what kind of wound uh, are we looking at are we looking at an inf inflammation are we looking at an infected wound if we look at the infected wound we have to focus on the short wavelength part in solar spectrum so the uv part the uvb and the uva mm, will create uh, an environment in the wound which is um, unfriendly to germs which will kill bacteria so the short wavelength part um, is able to reduce the number of uh, pathogens of pathogenic bacteria in the wounds the visible light or especially the the red and the near infrared part will do a completely different job the red light and the near infrared light will lead to an improved um, circulation to a better blood flow in the wound it will help to um, it will help mitochondria to produce more energy so um, the, this photobiomodulation part um, plays another role and if we look at both aspects from both ends of this of, of this solar spectrum in a way it is good to have uh, germ reduction on an, on the other hand it is beneficial to have an increase of energy production and uh, optimized uh, blood flow and blood circulation. Dr. Wunsch, I have a question. You had mentioned earlier um, Pythagoras and seeing the light spectrum in terms of, of octaves. Um, uh, in that context, do you find uh, uh, any benefits in working with what would be considered harmonies? Uh, just like a musical octave can have harmonic notes, do you use uh, harmonic light frequencies together to achieve different results? Yeah, this is this is what I call coherence therapy, 
that uh, I try to arrange or, or to choose the wavelengths and the frequencies and the oscillations in a way that they all are aligned in the same family of octaves. Um, <clears throat> what what does this mean? If you we first first of all we have um, a lot of um, of of mechanisms or a lot of activities in our organism which are based on oscillations. Um, almost all the um, the neuronal activities are based on oscillations. Um, we find frequencies almost everywhere in the organism. And when we look at frequencies uh, of our the, the bowel movement for example will mm, will have a certain frequency our the our breath our breathing uh, will exhibit a certain frequency and if you look at these frequencies you can mm, see clear connections between all the frequencies in different octaves which occur in our organism and our organism has a tendency as all matter has a tendency to mm, arrange uh, itself according to laws of harmony you you find octaves you find uh, quartz you, the the mm, the harmonies you find on the keyboard of a piano, for example, can also be discovered uh, in certain oscillation relations in our organism as well. So then does exposing somebody to these oscillations, does that then kind of bring the body like maybe in, in you know, I've, I've read about how in different disease states, um, those uh, frequencies might be off for some reason in the body. And is it is it a, a means of kind of bringing it back into that kind of harmonic resonance? Exactly. And uh, you're using the principle of resonance. Uh, if you have an oscillator with the frequency X inside, you can stimulate the oscillations by using an oscillator with the frequency X on the outside and the mm, the special thing or the special aspect is that you don't even have to transmit a lot of energy when you are working with these resonance principles you only need mm, tiny little bits of energy the main aspect is the information and this information um, in our example is the frequency and if you have exactly the same frequency let's say 10 hertz outside or and 10 hertz inside then um, you meet it exactly on the same level but if you uh, have 20 hertz which is the octave above the 10 hertz it's the octave is a mathematical relation of factor two it's precisely defined 
and uh, it's the connecting ribbon um, between the different octaves. So when you look at the keyboard of a piano, all the all the tones which are in an octave relationship almost sound uh, identically mm, in an identical way. So there is uh, even the lowest C and the highest C on a keyboard played together will fall into uh, a perfect harmony. They, this, all the C's are connected via the law of octaves on the keyboard, and our ears are able to uh, to to demonstrate this. Because if you choose a C and a tone which is closely nearby, it will sound awful, but the octave always will sound almost identical. <clears throat> and uh, you can just extrapolate this. <clears throat> from the keyboard to the tones, uh, the the lower frequencies and also to the higher frequencies. There, there is a a very a brilliant chart of the electromagnetic radiation spectrum, which can be downloaded from from a website uniheadron.com for free. And on this, uh, it's a it's it's it comes from physics and not from medicine, but it uh, really demonstrates the law of octaves in a, in a perfect manner because all the, the frequencies from the electromagnetic radiation spectrum are aligned in octaves. And so you can, for example, go into the area where you have the octave of visible radiation and you just go down on the same line and you will end up in a low frequency area uh, area of this of the radiation spectrum so this is a perfect example how to visualize the law of octaves if if you have this chart in mind hmm. but uh, we are in a radio show so it's no <clears throat> no there's no way to uh, to make this uh, apparent in a visible manner, but uh, yeah, all the frequencies in our body um, can be aligned or brought into harmony using resonance as a um, principle of interaction. That's fascinating. It's very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> that that actually makes me wonder about potential negative side effects. Uh, is Dr. Wunsch, is there a possibility that, say, if you were treating a certain condition, say, as you had mentioned, a bacterial infection, <clears throat> that you could, uh, it, without a proper knowledge of the frequencies at play, uh, that you could actually land upon a, 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 a frequency or an oscillation which uh, which benefited the bacteria and would cause them to grow um, and perhaps make the infection worse. Is it possible to come across these types of uh, negative side effects? I guess my point being in the question is, you know, uh, how careful do you have to be when you're doing this kind of therapy? 
So if you're doing some kind, any kind of therapy, uh, being careful is is a, a good strategy, of course. But um, yes, indeed, if you are working with artificially produced <coughs> frequencies or pulses or whatever, or radiation, uh, there are radiations which um, are able to increase a certain reaction and there are radiation types which are able to decrease the reaction and for sunlight it's in a way uh, if you go to the pharmacy and tell the pharmacist to <clears throat> put a little bit uh, from every bottle <coughs> in every shelf into the bottle you want to take home with then you have what you get kind of from sunlight. And when we start to produce the, the light in an artificial way, it can happen that you only will get the content of one of the bottles in one particular part of the, of the shelf. Uh, in in the pharmacy, so the 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 risk, the lowest risk, <clears throat> in my understanding, as long as we follow um, certain principle rules or basic rules, if we are using sunlight, the potential risk is very low, because mm. we are dealing with. Uh, with an emanation of nature which had been there uh, since the very beginning. So the, the probability that we are optimally adapted to this form of energy or information and or information is very high. In speaking about a certain laser frequency with with the pulse mode of, of certain frequency, we cannot rely on the fact that since the very beginning uh, of life, this was an influence we were able to adapt to. Hmm. So there, there is a difference. If, if you, there's always in life um, that the, it's always true that um, the dose makes the poison. So we can overdose sunlight. We can overdose salt, which is inevitable for maintaining life in the right dose. We can overdose even water, and we also can overdose oxygen. So um, the question, what is the right dose, is always a question which has to be raised before before you use uh, certain means but um, you have to ask and investigate even more intensely when you are working with uh, yeah frequencies which do not occur in nature for example or which only occur under certain circumstances. 
like the frequencies uh, from our um, from from our cell phones or from the, the wireless LAN or so, mm. or the frequencies we find in the grid of our of our electricity supply. Sure. Well, that definitely lends to the. I mean, we've talked on this show uh, in the past, uh, and have uh, have interviewed another guest on this topic of uh, uh, electromagnetic uh, EMF um, pollution, so to speak, uh, and the idea that the frequencies that are being generated by uh, the grid, by uh, cell phone towers, uh, by wireless uh, internet. Uh, connections uh, and that kind of thing the saturation of these frequencies is having a very negative effect on on people's health so it would make sense in line with what you're talking about that these uh, the oscillations of these frequencies would not be uh, for lack of a better word uh, harmonious uh, with the oscillations that we have in our bodies is that uh, an accurate interpretation this is <clears throat> at, at least one aspect um, our our body uses and is able to detect very broad bandwidth of different frequencies and what we definitely can say that <clears throat> the the frequencies we are using for communication for example um, they are much much they are much much stronger than the same frequencies which occur in nature and we have for example some windows in our atmosphere which are transparent for a certain range of, of frequencies and in former times our um, organism in a way was able to detect <coughs> even very weak signals which appear in the atmosphere and which have natural um, natural origin for example there is a study which which i find is very very interesting from i think from the the 1990s where some swedish um, researchers investigated the role of sunlight for the development of melanoma and they were asking themselves if sunlight really is the main reason for the increasing incidence of melanoma, then we normally should see in our epidemiological testings that there was an increase with the um, with the jet set uh, era. So when people started to enter uh, an aeroplane and to fly to a distant place where they have much more sun, this normally should show um, <coughs> uh, some some difference in, in epidemiological data with regard to sun-induced problems of the skin. But they they just didn't find this correlation. But what they found is that in Europe, for example, in all those countries who established the uh, the ultra shortwave 
um, radio transmission systems in the midst of uh, the 1950s, they, they uh, discovered that in the same year when the radio transmission was established, there was uh, an increase in melanoma mortality. Wow. And in the following years, there was an increase in the melanoma incidence. So even an inversion of the natural sequence, because normally you would have first a rise in the incidence and then a rise in mortality. And in those countries in Europe, which enrolled the, trans the radio transmission system three years later, they found this change three years later with regard to melanoma development. Hmm. And <clears throat> somehow they, they uh, hypothesize where this might have come from. But uh, in, the, in this uh, atmospherical window where the transmission of electromagnetic radiation, electromagnetic radiation is very good in the ultra short wavelength part of the spectrum, there is a window in the atmosphere, which means in this frequency range, um, electromagnetic radiation, extraterrestrial electromagnetic radiation is able to um, come through. And we have another window in the part of the visible spectrum. So if there is a an increase of solar radiation in terms of increased UV, for example, due to an increased activity of sun, there in parallel is also an increase of extraterrestrial radiation around the one meter wavelength band, which is the ultra short wavelength band. Hmm. So they hypothesize hmm. that our organism is able to not only detect the light and the UV, but also to detect the electromagnetic activity in the one meter band. And that there are some links in between that our organisms might have learned if there is an increased activity in the ultra short wavelength band, the probability is pretty high that there is also a high radiation level in the UV part. So um, if we are using this ultra-short um, wavelength band for communication purposes, in a way we close this communication channel for our organism because mm. uh, the technically produced radiation is much, much more intense compared to this natural level of radiation. And the reason to use the one meter band is that the atmosphere is transparent in this area. So we need less energy mm, for the same distance uh, in terms of we need less radio stations because atmosphere is more transparent um, in this wavelength range. So the technicians uh, found that this their estimation was this is 
great. It saves a lot of energy. Let's use exactly this part. And they have no idea or had no idea that this might be a natural communication channel between uh, creatures on Earth and uh, our our uh, sun in the middle of the solar system. And hmm. so we have a lot of examples for for uh, blocking or um, deafening or blinding our senses, even senses we are we are not aware of. Um, just I think one or two years ago, um, they discovered some some scientists discovered uh, a, a very very um, capable sensor for electrical fields in our skin cells. There is some ion channel system which is able to detect the weakest fields. So the from the molecular side, in the meantime, we have the knowledge. But on the other hand, it's for some of us, it's a bit too late because they are already stamped as uh, yeah, uh, unnormal because they think they feel electromagnetic fields, uh, which others don't feel. So, in a way, we are talking about a very uh, difficult um, matter and talking about uh, the the limits of of our um, understanding of of the underlying mechanisms here. Yeah, I think the the electro the electromagnetic sensitivity is of that some people have uh, is a very interesting phenomena, and I certainly do not want to. Uh, discredit it, uh, despite the, the lack of understanding around the topic, you know, people, some, there are some people who are so sensitive to these frequencies that they become sick, uh, very ill in the presence of them. And some of them have even had to, uh, been forced to move, uh, to yeah. areas of the world where there are less ambient frequencies just so they can live a normal life. Yeah. And since one or two years, we have a scientific basis to understand what's going on in them. And uh, the next question is, why do others uh, not exhibit the same uh, sensitivity? What is the difference between, because all of us have the same sensors in our skin and have the same kind of mechanisms in our system, but some of us suffer a lot <clears throat> and others, they just don't care. They feel nothing. And the, the interesting question to me is, where is the difference? Mm. Or what makes the difference? And uh, this is, when we talk about light, um, this, this is a very interesting question, for example, with regard to uh, spectral distribution of artificial light sources or with regard to light flicker of artificial light sources. Some are very sensitive to it. And others, they seem to have mechanisms which are able to filter out these uh, interactions and uh, mechanisms which which uh, enable them to ignore the differences. And Dr. Wunsch, you spoke earlier about um, life on Earth being optimally adapted 
to this type of electromagnetic radiation, um, sunlight, full spectrum sunlight. Um, so could you just tell us um, some of the benefits of um, being exposed to full spectrum sunlight? Um, because it's quite a common theme now um, in health circles. And when you go to the doctor, um, they will tell you to, to stay out of the sun. Um, but some of the work that you have done um, is very interesting, particularly on the biological effects um, of sunlight when it penetrates the skin. Um, and could you tell us uh, a little bit about what you found and about the different types of, 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 of frequencies contained within the sunlight? Um, <clears throat> so, first of all, we are light creatures. And the fact that humans um, don't have don't wear fur or don't have fur but but a hairless skin um, demonstrates how important the direct contact between the body surface and the um, solar radiation in our environment is otherwise we would have protective fur in between um, but <clears throat> the problem might be that um, a few percent of the population probably will not benefit from uh, exposure to sunlight. And there is a very small percentage of the population suffering from uh, specific diseases which um, make them uh, incompatible with sunlight uh, and there might be uh, another um, fraction of the population <coughs> which uh, by the cause of, of ancestry um, would not benefit from the local sunlight where they actually are living but i i would guess that 95 percent of the population um, not only benefits uh, from sunlight but really needs sunlight for uh, maintaining optimal health um, we of course can talk about the, the vitamin d issue in the meantime it is a topic in the media. Uh, we know that vitamin D is important. It is a, an essential uh, precursor of, of a hormone, of a steroid hormone, which helps our body to <coughs> adjust uh, certain metabolical um, performances to the outer environment, to the seasonal conditions, for example. Um, so depending on, on the season, depending on the skin type, um, each person needs a certain amount of sunlight on the skin in order to produce sufficient amounts of vitamin D for the for the organism for the 
different cell types which benefit from the optimal level of vitamin D. Uh, there is, you can almost, you can look at almost any part of the spectrum and there will be some substance in our body which is able to absorb this particular wavelength. And absorption of a particular wavelength means that there is an energy exchange. There is an exchange of information. And almost any substance in our bloodstream, all the hormones, they have specific absorption patterns and are able to take up a particular part of energy in the solar spectrum. And so uh, aside from the, um, from the vitamin D production, um, what effects do certain frequencies have on, on the mitochondria? Because uh, there's a lot of research that's come out recently that, that is suggestive that healthy mitochondrial function um, is you know, is, is the way that people live so long. You know, you have super centenarians who live into their hundreds and they, um, they seem to have particular characteristics, which means that they have very healthy mitochondrial function. And um, I wonder if, you, if you'd be able to explain the different effects. For instance, um, infrared light. Um, how does an, an, uh, a far infrared sauna, a sauna or an infrared sauna, um, how does that benefit the mitochondria? Um, why does it work so well? And is it just infrared light that benefits the mitochondria, or do different, do other frequencies also have a beneficial effect? Yeah, as I <clears throat> already said, you can tell a specific absorption spectrum for any substance in your bloodstream, and the bloodstream um, is in more or less direct contact with solar irradi uh, with solar radiation once you uh, shine sunlight onto your skin because the capillaries in your skin are just a tenth of a millimeter beyond the surface of your organism so there is an almost direct contact between the outer radiation and your bloodstream. And for example, when we talk about stress hormones, stress hormones, steroid hormones, they will uh, become degraded by uh, ultraviolet radiation. So if, if you are stressed and if you expose your body to sunlight, <clears throat> you will experience a significant reduction of stress hormones because these stress hormones will become destroyed um, through the um, activity of, of ultraviolet radiation uh, which is um, contained in, in the solar spectrum. Um, but you mentioned the mitochondria. First of all, it's not the far infrared it's the far red and the near infrared part where we have a good body of evidence that there is um, an effect 
onto mitochondrial processes. Um, what what has been investigated since since um, decades is the cytochrome C oxidase, which which is a, an enzyme in the uh, contained in the membrane structures in mitochondria, and this cytochrome C oxidase is the <clears throat> last step before uh, protons in mitochondria um, drive this little turbine which produces the so-called ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate, which is the chemical fuel in biology. So all the processes which are mm, energy hungry in our body, in our cells, depend on proper concentration of ATP. Our bodies produce uh, the same amount of ATP uh, as we uh, see in, in terms of, of mass on the scale when we when we have a body mass of <clears throat> 80 kilograms, our body uh, has to produce roughly 80 kilograms of ATP uh, in 24 hours. And the enzyme, which um, in, in, the, in the electron transport chain, which is the energy uh, producing process uh, contained in the mitochondria, uh, the last step uh, of this uh, electron transport chain is this is represented by mm, this enzyme cytochrome C oxidase and cytochrome C oxidase absorbs light in the orange red in the deep red and in the near infrared so if you look at um, cells which have reduced mitochondrial activity, <clears throat> you can stabilize the mitochondrial activity in terms of increasing the energy production, the ATP production, by shining light in the wavelength range between 600 and 850 nanometers onto these cells, onto these mitochondria. And uh, as you already mentioned, that uh, several diseases and natural processes like aging depend on uh, mitochondrial function. So if the mitochondrial function is somehow decreased or um, hampered, then um, light in the far red and in the near infrared is able to stabilize to help uh, the mitochondria to perform much much better this uh, is one aspect of the red and near infrared radiation and there is another aspect um, which um, concerns the production of reactive oxygen species of, of oxidative processes of oxidative molecules. Mm, you've heard of antioxidants, which uh, are necessary to reduce the, mm, I would say, rusting or the destructive processes which are induced by 
um, free radicals. And these free radicals or reactive oxygen species, they can also be produced by mitochondria, but they uh, can occur um, somewhere or anywhere in the cell. And if uh, reactive oxygen species occur um, in, in the vicinity of a membrane, um, there is a high probability that this uh, free radical will damage the membrane and thereby damage the cellular function. Um, <clears throat> when, when we look at mitochondrial activity, the process is that carbohydrates are oxidized, so we need oxygen and we need carbohydrates or sugar, glucose. And from these two compounds, uh, mitochondria produce ATP, carbon dioxide, and water. And a part, some, some fraction of the oxygen which is necessary to um, to produce energy, mm, five to ten percent of the oxygen consumed by mitochondria will definitely end up as reactive oxygen species or free radicals. So it is a normal process that these aggressive compounds mm, uh, will be produced during the energy um, production process. And when we stimulate mitochondria with red light and with near-infrared light, we find that there are two phases of reaction. In the first phase, uh, due to the energy production increase, there will be a slight increase in um, free radicals as well. And this increase in free radical concentration signals the nucleus of the cell that uh, production of antioxidants is needed. So in the second phase, um, there will be an increased availability of antioxidants in the cell we are looking at. So this is a, a second mechanism which can be induced by long wavelength radiation in the visible and near infrared part. Okay, so if I understand correctly, Alexander, um, it, is it the uh, aside from carbohydrate metabolism that produces reactive oxygen species, other kinds of light also initiate the, the production of reactive oxygen species? Um, I remember you speaking about um, in some of your lectures about how blue blue light and um, purple light um, short wavelength frequencies um, have the ability to produce that reactive oxygen species or those free radicals is that is that correct um, the only thing which is not correct is purple because purple is uh, not contained in the solar spectrum as a as an intrinsic wavelength, but okay. uh, it is correct that um, UVB and even more UVA and uh, violet and indigo and blue light as well are able to produce significant amounts of, react of reactive oxygen species. 
but in contrast to the free radicals which um, are produced by mitochondria, the free radicals which uh, are produced by <coughs> blue light or short wavelength light, they can occur uh, anywhere in the cell and they are um, they are the bad guys in a way. So the danger uh, in terms of free radicals comes from short wavelength light and blue light is, is a very um, particular uh, a very interesting part because it plays a great role in the modern artificial light sources we are surrounded by. For example, LEDs will emit significantly higher amounts of blue light in comparison to an incandescent lamp, for example. And so blue light uh, leads to increased uh, concentration of reactive oxygen species. And red light can help the cell to uh, fight and to protect uh, itself from excessive reactive oxygen species which are induced by uh, incident blue light. Okay, so essentially when, when your skin is exposed to full-spectrum sunlight, um, it contains both the blue and the infrared, or the red. Um, so, so it's almost, is, is it that the damage is, is partially counteracted by the fact that, that, that both ends of the frequencies are, um, are contained within that light source? Do, do, do they sort of cancel, cancel each other out? Or... Yeah, this uh, I already mentioned that sunlight contains um, all the different uh, parts of the spectrum and one part can be stimulating for a certain process and the other part can uh, can act uh, as as a as a anti uh, effect as an antidote so the toxins and the the cure are both contained in in sunlight for example near infrared makes more than 40% of the total uh, solar energy radiation energy and near infrared is always there near infrared is there when you are sitting in your cave uh, under the the influence of fire near infrared is there when you are exposed to incandescent lamps near infrared is there during night time outside so this is ubiquitous and um, 43% is present in sunlight and this is the trick that our organisms have learned to to deal with the problematic parts in the spectrum once they are have once they have been overdosed by using uh, other parts of the spectrum in our example the red and near infrared part to compensate for the potential damage which could be induced by blue light or indigo or violet light Okay, so um, 
earlier you, you spoke about ATP production and how light helps mitochondria to produce ATP. Um, and most people know ATP as the body's sort of energy currency. Um, and this is what determines how much energy we can use and, and basically live with. Um, but in, in the past, you've, you've spoken about light as an energy source for the body. Um, and some of our listeners will probably be familiar with the work of Dr. Gerald Pollack. Um, he talks a lot about light's effects on water. And um, I was just wondering if you could maybe explain to us a little bit about how um, light may act as an energy source for the body and maybe how much how much energy um, that actually accounts for in the body um, because it's it's generally accepted that food is where we where we get our energy from and so would you be able to to comment on that um <clears throat> you were raising two or opening two different doors with your question so in a way i don't know which way to go um Shall I start with the exclusion phase uh, or the exclusion zone? Shall I start with the water uh, aspect or shall I start with the energy aspect? Um, if you could, if you could start with the water aspect, that would be very helpful. Okay. So you take care that we don't forget the other um, topic, right? Okay. Yes. And you stole my question, Elliot. About food, <laughs> we won't. <laughs> so, um, water, the water molecule um, is not uh, a, a singular creature in our organism. Water always arranges in in, in groups uh, of of many many individuals. And especially in our cells, our body in total contains uh, two-thirds of water, probably. And <clears throat> all the, the other chemical compounds are covered by uh, water layers. And the, these water layers are arranged like the, the, the atoms in a crystal. So, in a way, they are assorted and they have uh, a topological relationship to their neighbors. Um, and Pollack um, makes a distinction between so-called bulk water and the water which is um, close to the biological structures so that it forms this so-called exclusion zone. And uh, the water molecules have mm, the ability to absorb light energy, to absorb photonic energy in certain um, spectral ranges. For example, when you look at infrared B or far infrared, um, water absorbs almost all the energy. Um, if you are sitting in a sauna, in a, in a um, not an infrared sauna, but a classical 
sauna, then you have um, a radiation environment in the infrared B and infrared C or in the mid or far infrared. And this heat, these heat rays, which can directly be felt as heat on the skin, uh, what what would you guess? Is there a high or a low penetration with regard to our body? A high penetration? No, <laughs> exactly the opposite. <laughs> um, the penetration depth for for heat, you, which you can feel, is less than one millimeter, because all the radiation will be absorbed by the water molecules as, uh, and we have water molecules even in our epidermal layers so the penetration depth is very low um, in opposite the penetration for near infrared radiation and for red light is significantly higher so um, red, red light for example can penetrate uh, more than several centimeters deep into the tissue. I think the third slide on, on the website where you have the sunlight which, which meets the hand, uh, you can get an idea from this, from this picture uh, because if, in my awareness the hand, the fingers looked a little bit reddish. But you can test it with, with a torch with a flashlight easily that, or when you put your finger tip in front of the camera of the camera of your smartphone and uh, you direct it into uh, into the direction of a light source then you will see a red screen so this is what this is the radiation which comes through our organism is almost transparent for red and for near infrared up to 1400 nanometers and uh, this means that we are able, when we use this part uh, of the spectrum, um, we not only can address the outer cell layers of our organism, we also can reach deeper layers, several centimeters deep uh, in our body. And this is what makes the near infrared so interesting because we uh, can reach deep and not only superficial effects. Coming back to water, um, we have a lot of water sheaths around or layers around all the biological structures within our cells. We have a lot of water in the extracellular matrix and uh, a crucial aspect for a well functioning metabolism is uh, good working uh, exchange of substances through the extracellular matrix, which is the coupling medium between the single cell and the um, adjacent uh, capillary vessel. So once metabolism means uh, substances are carried through the bloodstream and they are allowed to leave the, the um, circulatory system in the area of capillaries but then these substances have to um, 
pass the extracellular matrix before they reach their, uh, the cells they, they want to or they have to reach and they have to nourish. Um, and in the extracellular matrix, the concentration of water is even higher than uh, 60 or 70 percent. And we all know that, that if we start um, moving the water molecules, we know this from heating, if you drop um, a sugar cube <clears throat> into a cup of cold water without stirring, it will take quite a while until sugar has um, has completely be solved in the in, in this water mass. But if you are um, performing the same experiment with hot water and with uh, stirring with with a spoon, then the mm, sugar will go in, in solution much much faster, and this is due to the mm, higher degree of molecu molecular movement in the bulk water in your cup. And coming back to our extracellular matrix and to the spaces in our cells and between cells and capillary vessels. Water um, is able to amplify the uh, locomotion processes of um, of participants of the metabolic process. So, if we increase the molecular motion of water molecules, then we also increase the metabolic processes, we increase diffusion processes. Um, so this is still on a kind of, um, it's already a microscopic level, of course, but talking about the exclusion zone, talking about uh, these compartments of uh, these nano uh, scale compartments within the cell, um, we we can use these uh, amounts of water even as a kind of uh, pumping system because when water masses also in the exclusion zone absorb light energy they need more space for their molecular movement so these layers will become will they will increase in thickness after the energy absorption so if you shine the light on the exclusion zone it will increase the thickness and if you extinguish the light it will decrease its thickness so by using for example pulsing light you can bring uh, additional movement um, even in these uh, water layers around the microscopical structures in living cells with the result that you increase the molecular exchange that you increase metabolism and thereby you increase detoxification you increase uh, the performance of the cell wow so Essentially, light's effect on the water in your body allows 
the body to do many of the things um, that it does. Um, and that's really quite an amazing thing because I don't think there's a, enough um, spotlight, <laughs> I guess, no pun intended, but I don't think there's enough um, emphasis placed on the importance of light um, for the for the operation of, of your physiology, essentially. Um, but back onto the onto the energy topic, um, how how does light act as an energy source for the body? You know, how how much energy would you attribute um, light's effects to, essentially? Um. <clears throat> When we have to step into uh, thermodynamics and physics a bit to answer this question in a sufficient manner, um, looking at at a black body radiator um, or a black body radiation source, uh, then we can assign a certain amount of energy per squ uh, surface unit which will be irradiated or emitted by this body and our our body is mm, almost behaves like a black like a black body radiator um at a temperature of 310 point whatever kelvin um, are you familiar with with black body radiation? Um, are you familiar with Kelvin? Not really. No, no not, not really. particularly. <laughs> so, uh, at a temperature of minus two hundred and seventy six mm, degrees Celsius, we have no uh, oscillation, no atomic or molecular oscillation at all. And this is the absolute zero. This is zero Kelvin. Uh, extremely cold with no molecular movement. And warmer bodies, they start moving uh, inside. They, they exhibit uh, a molecular movement. And this movement <clears throat> increases. And if we are looking at this idea of a black body, which means this body by itself does not emit radiation, it's absorbing all the radiation due to the fact that it's black. And if we heat up this black body, let's say to a temperature of 2000 degrees of Celsius, it will uh, emit radiation in the visible part of the spectrum and it will glow in an orange, orange, yellowish hue. Uh, so the hotter a body, the more radiate, the more um, visible radiation will be emitted by this body. And there are some formulas in physics which give you uh, an idea about the amount of energy which is emitted by a black body radiator of a certain temperature. And our 
our um, human body has a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. And if you add this to the 273 uh, minus Celsius, and we start with zero Kelvin at minus 273, then we end up um, at 310 Kelvin for the body temperature of 37 Kelvin Celsius. Okay? Yeah. Up to, up to this. And a black body um, emits around 545 watts per square meter at a temperature of 310 Kelvin. So this you have to take as a fact, but you can look it up or you can believe me. Um, so this is our energy emission. Uh, if we look at our body as a black body radiator. And if, if you um, then double this amount, because the uh, human body has a surface of about two square meters and not only one square meter. In the 310K body with a surface of two square meters emits around one kilowatt or 1000 watt. And in 24 hours, this is 24, around 24 kilowatt hours of energy which is emitted physically from our body. But we are not living in an environment uh, of zero Kelvin, but we are living in an environment uh, filled up with other bodies um, emitting mm, radiation, infrared radiation, for example. So our 20 degrees of Celsius mm, massively contribute to our, mm, to the energy which we are emitting. So if we would have to produce the one kilowatt um, just by ingestion of, of uh, calories from nutrition, we would be completely lost. The thermal pool <laughs> of radiation around us uh, makes its contribution. Um, so in this context, we, we have to accept that uh, a great part of the energy we are constantly emitting comes from the radiation pool which surrounds us. And wow. for example, the near-infrared radiation around us is able to penetrate deeply into our body and this will be transformed into longer wavelengths and longer wavelengths and longer wavelengths and it will only be able to leave our organism after a transformation from, if we talk about 1,000 uh, nanometers 
near infrared radiation. The peak of emission uh, of our body is around somewhere between 8,000 and 12,000 nanometers. So around 10 micrometers or 10,000 nanometers, we find the emission peak of our body when we look at it as a black body radiator. And the energy we are taking in, um, <clears throat> the, the, the highest amount of energy we, we can accept is in this, in the part of, of the optical tissue window between 600 and 2000 nanometers or 600 and 1500 nanometers. Here, our body is quite transparent compared, it could be compared to the window in a greenhouse, which is able to let the visible radiation in, but it blocks the um, infrared B and the infrared C. So in a way, the, the radiation energy which passed through the window is trapped inside the greenhouse. And due to this, the temperature rises inside. And what happens in our body somehow can compare with this greenhouse mechanism that short wavelengths are able to pass the skin and to penetrate the body. And then they are trapped until they are transformed into a very, very long wavelength around 10,000 nanometer, because this is the window where the radiation can leave our body again. So, I mean, that, that was a lot of information there, Alexander. I think I'll have to listen to that back a couple of times to fully understand what you're saying. Um, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Um, but is, does, does it essentially come down to the fact that light or electromagnetic radiation um, is absorbed by the body and essentially contributes to the body's energy requirements? Um, and it doesn't yeah. simply come from the food that we eat. And to double on yeah, Elliot's exactly. comment, um, there are people that claim to be able to exist solely on light. So if a person is receiving a lot of natural light, a lot of the near-infrared light from the sun, does that mean that they can consume less food and still maintain a su sufficient amount of energy in order to function? So uh, if, if you... <laughs> Mm, if we just think about winter time, um, someone who is not able to mm, to cover uh, himself in clothes in in isolating she sheaths or layers has to produce much more um, thermal energy from metabolical processes. So you need less food when you dress. And you would need more food if you uh, are unable to protect yourself in terms of isolating your body from uh, the low thermal uh, quality in the environment or the cold in the environment. Um, I, I have, um, from a scientific viewpoint, I am not aware of any case of 
documented um, uh, energy intake or or uh, not intake of someone who who lives from light. Uh, what I'm missing in all the reports of of uh, consuming light instead of uh, food is where is the heliotherapy in this concept? Where is the controlled additional light exposure in this concept? But maybe I just don't know enough about uh, these cases. Okay, so for for someone who is suffering from some kind of energy deficiency and they have become very sick um, or are just generally not feeling very well, um, is is this part of the mechanism behind how going out in the sun um, when it's summertime, simply sitting out in the sun um, generally just feels really good for the body? It, it feels like... Um, you know, it feels healing in in some way. You know, is is this a way in which by which someone can Im- improve their energy status if they're suffering from some kind of deficit? Um, first of all, we would have to to uh, step a bit deeper or investigate deeper. What 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 does it mean not feeling so well? Um, but in general, uh, I would say. Mm, disease and the way to disease um, goes always along with a weakening of uh, rhythmicity, uh, a decrease in the amplitude, for example, of our circadian rhythms. So we, many of us do not have enough natural daylight during the day and they have too much artificial light throughout the 24 hours and this leads to a flattening of the of the the amplitude of life and these amplitudes of being active in in bright environment during daylight and being <clears throat> more or less passive and giving the, the the organism the chance to restore and to recover during the dark phase. <clears throat> this is um, affected in in many many of us, and this leads to this flattening of of the. Um, of the oscillations of night and day, of uh, active and restorative. And light, as one of the most uh, effective zeitgebers, um, has the potential to put some, some energy into the swing system. So mm. it pushes it pushes uh, the oscillation like you would push a pendulum of uh, of a clock which which doesn't have enough energy anymore to perform its oscillation so it's like uh, giving a kick to to the pendulum giving a kick to the swing 
and you can do it by increasing darkness uh, during night time as well as increasing the brightness during daytime the the target or the aim is to uh, restore rhythmicity and the loss of rhythmicity can be equaled to disease wow so it comes down to this rhythmicity of the organism that's absolutely fascinating um you talk about artificial light and um many people understand that artificial light after darkness um suppresses melatonin production um and that can therefore you know um throw off the the so-called circadian rhythm um and you've also spoken about how blue light in its sort of isolated form um well sorry that's not what you said blue light can can cause reactive oxygen species um and so the the lights that we typically use these ener- energy saving light bulbs um they're very different to the incandescents aren't they um in in that in that they only provide certain parts of the spectrum and w- would you be able to explain um you know what are the biological effects of living under uh, an uh, a typical fluorescent light bulb um i can talk about the fluorescent light bulbs but i think uh, this is um a species which is dying out at the moment um so i would like to talk about non-thermal light sources okay. and non-thermal light sources uh, represents the group of fluorescent lamps and the group of LED lamps. All the light sources where the light comes not from heat. Here we are back to the black body, by the way, but from some other process like discharge process. Because the fluorescent lamp, for example, can uh, can be um, specified with with the color temperature of 6000 kelvin which is pretty hot and even hotter than sun than the sun itself but um a fluorescent lamp never has a, a real temperature of 6000 kelvin but the filament in an incandescent lamp has a temperature of 3000 Kelvin or 2700 Kelvin, a true temperature. And um, the color temperatures which are specified for LEDs or fluorescent lamps are not true temperatures. They are so-called correlated color temperatures. Uh, They appear to our eye um, kind of similar to a true uh, color temperature mm, of a black body with with for example three or six thousand kelvin um, the the incandescent lamp and the candlelight and sunlight represent the thermal light sources which follow a natural law and our eye for example was able to adapt to the properties of all these natural light sources. The eye is able to adapt to candlelight and will give you a perfect color rendering even in candlelight. Uh, 
and it will give you perfect color rendering in sunlight. Candlelight has 2000 Kelvin, sunlight has 6000 Kelvin or so. And everything which lies in between this, this uh, range of 1800 Kelvin and 6000 Kelvin will give you uh, a perfect color rendering and will induce um, reactions in your body which make sense in a biological way, in a physiological way. So if we have 1800 Kelvin or 2000 Kelvin, uh, as we have it in fire, for example, then our body um, learns from the appearance of the light that there is no risk of sunburn, that uh, the body can, in a way, sit back and relax because no dangers are around. Um, in contrast to the situation when we are exposed to direct sunlight with 6000 Kelvin, uh, the difference between the 6000 Kelvin and the 2000 Kelvin, the difference in visual appearance is what? S sorry? 4000 Kelvin. No, in visual appearance, the difference in visual appearance between uh, fire and sunlight is what? S well, sunlight is brighter. It's more white. It's brighter and it's whiter. And being whiter and not yellowisher comes from increased amounts of blue in the spectrum. Fire has only very, very, very low amounts in the short wavelength part. And sunlight has uh, significantly higher amounts in the short wavelength part. So um, just looking at a cold white or neutral white light source signal, there is more blue inside. And under natural conditions, if you have more blue, our body learned uh, during the last uh, millions of years in evolution, that blue in nature, a high content of blue light um, represents sunlight because this is only the case that we have high amounts of blue light when we are exposed to bright, intense sunlight. And the higher the content of blue, the higher the amount of blue, the higher the amount of ultraviolet radiation, and the higher the risk to experience an, a UV overdose. UV is invisible, and so our body helped mm, himself to extrapolate from the blue in order to guess the amount of the danger, potentially dangerous ultraviolet. So there are um, entangled reactions which follow uh, blue light exposure. And the purpose of this uh, was to um, support and enable our survival because an overdose of UV can be a deadly um, situation. And our body has to 
to learn about the uh, dignity of the environment or the characteristics of the environment. And this is done via an evaluation not only of brightness, but also of the uh, content or concentration of short wavelengths. So there is, uh, for example, an increase of stress hormones, which can be measured after exposure to bright bluish sunlight. Um, under natural conditions, this absolutely makes sense and is, uh, it increases our, um, our ability to survive. But if you're sitting in an office exposed to fluorescent lamps with color temperature um, correlated to the color, color temperature of sunlight, then, uh, your system is not able to understand that it has the same appearance of light, but in the office there is no risk for a UV hazard, for example. And therefore there is no need for producing stress hormones. Under sunlight, it's important to produce stress hormones as an answer to high amounts of potentially present UV radiation. But in the, the office, uh, it's, it's even um, a problem if, you, if your organism produces stress hormones, because stress hormones, which under sunlight would be uh, decomposed in the bloodstream, or would be used up by um, locomotion, by muscular uh, activity, these stress hormones, they build up as a response to increased blue light in, in the spectrum, but they will not decrease um, as they would under the natural outside conditions. Wow. And so, so this, this uh, is one problem that non-thermal light sources signal a condition to our organism, which is not there, in fact, because they signal there is a potential danger due to high amounts of ultraviolet radiation. Hmm. That's wow. fascinating. Yeah. So essentially, uh, artificial light sources um, are, are basically causing the body to produce loads of stress hormones and the, the natural signal to degrade those stress hormones is not present. And so someone who is trying to live a healthy lifestyle by doing all of the right things, sticking with their diet, um, you know, doing exercise, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, but are, are still living under these artificial lights, are still potentially um, uh, getting sick fr from that light exposure. Uh, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So if you do your workout, you will be able to decrease the, the concentration of stress hormones a bit. But um, talking about someone who is exposed to 
to office lighting, uh, he will not be able to to um, work out. He will not be able to move in a sufficient way in order to decrease stress hormones. Um, for example, another uh, issue is um, that in under the influence of sunlight, our body needs to to keep to hold back uh, water in order to have enough um, water in stock for sweating, cooling, and so on, uh, which is which is uh, mediated via the mineral corticoid um, corticoid hormones. So stress hormones not only mean adrenaline and cortisol, but also mineral corticoids and so on. So it has a widespread uh, effect. The the um, the tweaking of our circulatory system and metabolical system is very complex. Uh, the the sunlight induced adaptation or tweaking of our autonomous processes inside, and uh, light which appears like sunlight to our eyes, but does not provide the same properties. For example, in the near infrared and in the UV will cheat our system and will induce uh, a maladaptation instead of uh, beneficial effects or reactions. And this is this is one of the main problems, isn't it? Is because because of how important light is or or light stimulus is for coordinating the different rhythms in the body um that when you when you are exposed to this artificial light um at nighttime you're essentially telling the body that it's daytime because that yeah. is the only time when when your eye would be subject or would would basically encounter the amount of blue that is that is in that light source and so when you're just preparing to go to go to bed you turn on the light and your body is suddenly sent a a, a signal to say hey it's daytime wake up <laughs> you know mm -hmm. then you're going to go to sleep and you're not going to be able to to perform those regenerative um regenerative processes and so yeah. it's so easy to see how this can uh, over a long period of time can can spiral into into serious disease um yeah would would you be able to just quickly because we're very mindful of your time dr wunch um and we are slightly over on time actually but would you be able to just give some um examples of of different types of of light bulbs that we can use um that don't necessarily have this effect um or aren't as um isolated in the in the blue part of the spectrum so uh, first of all uh, we we should not mm, use the light levels um, we are using in the meantime uh, when when it's evening or nighttime so after sunset uh, we should keep mm, the light level as low as it's uh, as as possible and we only should use light for orientation, more or less. And we should make ourselves clear that um, every time we see colors after sunset, we take away regeneration time 
from our body. We take away regeneration time from our retina, from our eye. And uh, this is the first problem. Um, the other thing is you can, you still can buy incandescent lamps. And if you uh, choose halogen incandescent lamps, they have um, 100% higher energy efficiency compared to the standard incandescent lamps. So they are energy saving incandescent lamps, but still provide a natural spectrum. And um, if we do not intend to produce daylight conditions, daylight-like conditions uh, after sunset, but use just one or two bulbs instead with, with a low illumination level, it's even compatible with energy-saving ideas. And we, at the moment, we do not have um, a real substitute for the incandescent lamp. And talking about or thinking about energy efficiency, a candle is even uh, less energy efficient um, than an incandescent lamp. But a candle is a very friendly and natural light source which can be used by all of those who do not uh, suffer from asthma or other uh, mm, respiratory um, problems. Dr. Wunsch, um, about the halogen incandescent bulbs, what about the ones yeah. with the white coating over them? Um, with the coating... What, what do you mean with coating? Some of the bulbs come with like a white coating. They're not clear. Is there a difference? Ah, um, <clears throat> you, you talk about opaque or fully transparent and clear right. uh, lamp housings. Yes. For the eye, it's, it's um, healthier to have opaque or diffuse light sources. So you don't have this um, punctual intensity. So if you don't have to look directly into the glowing filament, but on a larger diffuse area of light, this for sure it's bad is better. But uh, unfortunately, the opaque or um, matte um, versions are not available anymore, uh, very hard to get. Um, but normally it's, uh, it should not make a difference because you are not uh, using the naked lamp. You operate it normally in a kind, in, in any, in, in a fixture and the fixture should provide that the light will be directed in in the in onto the area where you have to do the vision task but not into the direction of the observer of the of the eye because this is always not uh, a good idea to shine artificial light directly into the eye you should uh, intend to 
to confront ourselves with the reflected light. And we also should uh, look at nature and uh, what nature provides in terms of topology. So light comes from significant amounts of light come from above only during the day under natural conditions and the fire and the torches they are not above the horizontal level in nature so light in the evening and light at night should be in the lower area and not uh, above our heads in order to be consistent with the natural conditions. Well, this is absolutely fascinating, and I, I really enjoy how you are drawing parallels with the natural world uh, because we talk about that in other contexts uh, as well uh, in regulating the, the cycle of our activities and the cycle of our eating uh, and all of that uh, in trying to mimic the, the natural conditions. So what you're saying makes uh, complete uh, intuitive sense, and it's, it's fascinating that it's backed up with, um, you know, with scientific observation as well. Um, but Dr. Wunsch, we are approaching the end of our time. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your time with us. We know that it's valuable, um, and uh, I know that our listeners are appreciative too. Um, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to uh, to promote briefly. Now, I was, we were looking before the show if you had any materials, and I know that you have various interviews uh, uh, with some other shows, uh, Dr. Mercola, namely, and then you have some, some blog posts and things like that. I did find on Amazon.co.uk a book in German, uh, Licht Therapy, uh, that looks like it was written by you and five other authors. Now, is that the case? Is that released yet, or...? Um, I don't think that it's released yet, um, and I don't think that it will be available in English. But, okay. Um, there will be a. I also. I'm also interested in the effects of colored light, and uh, I developed a set of colored glasses, uh, twelve different hues according to the spectrochrome system. And uh, in in a few weeks there will be a book, uh, a handbook, a manual available which introduces uh, the reader to the spectrochrome system and, and how we can use the the colors in a controlled way in order to um, to foster or to stimulate these uh, natural autonomous processes which come into action, for example, when we step out and uh, take a walk uh, in the forest or if we, if we are in a, in a sunrise or sunset situation or so, or when you're looking over a field with, with yellow blossoms, uh, what, what happens in our body, in our uh, physiology? Uh, it, it depends very much from, from the quality also of colors we are surrounded by and this booklet will be available soon and then I have I think uh, almost 50 um, presentations available 
on vimeo.com slash alexanderwunsch and there is also a section uh, Alexander Wunsch in English where you can find um, audio-visual presentations which can be accessed for free um, and I'm talking about uh, many of the aspects uh, of today's uh, radio show and this might help understanding if you want to to go deeper into the topic. Well, that's great. Yeah, I, so I, I can I can just to add quickly um I can say that I've watched many of Dr. Wunsch's um Vimeo lectures and they are absolutely jam-packed full of really, really, really fascinating information. I would recommend all listeners to go to his Vimeo page um, because, you know, really this is information that is so sort of ahead of its time almost but really makes intuitive sense and is not widely acknowledged by many people. Um, but it really is important, I believe, and... Um, and yeah, go ahead and, and check out those videos because they are jam-packed. And you may need to watch them a, a couple of times to, to finally start to understand it. But um, but yeah, I just want to say again, thank you, Dr. Wunsch. It's really been amazing having you on the show. So thank you for having you having me here with, with you in the show. It was great, great fun. You're, you're utterly welcome. We're, we're totally... Uh totally excited that you were here and that, um, to delve further into the information that you shared. I know for one, I'm going to have to listen to this show back again, maybe a few times to, uh, to fully absorb uh, some of the information that you gave us. And so we, we highly appreciate it regarding the, the booklet and the glasses that you spoke of, uh, where might our listeners uh, look to find those when they become available? There is a, a website, www.spectrook chrome.de but maybe okay. I can give you the address or uh, can send the address to Elliot um, sure. mm. because this website exists in a German and in an English version and so you can the, the interested people can learn about the system already on the on the website and they can um, register for a newsletter which might start soon and there they will find will be able to find uh, additional information and also when the book um, is available they will find it there awesome all right well well thank you again um to, not to not to repeat ourselves too much but we really really appreciate your time uh and uh, we we wish you the best uh in, in your in your life and in your uh studies uh, please uh, continue to share this information with people and um, uh, thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you very much, Jonathan. All right. Well, I think that we will, uh, we'll wrap it up for the, t for today. We're going to, we're going to call that uh, today's show. Um, thanks everybody for, for listening, uh, for people participating in the chat. Um, we did have a few uh questions that we weren't able to get to throughout the show, but I think that that's okay. Um, a lot of the information was answered kind of in a roundabout way. And of course, as Elliot mentioned, please check out Dr. Wunsch's uh, Vimeo lectures. I'm sure that much more of that information is covered there. Um, 
uh, we encourage our listeners as well to check out the other SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net and you can see the airtime in your local time zone there. Um, so thanks again, everybody. And uh, we will return uh, next week with a new topic. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.